Welcome to Podcastica Patristica. We're your hosts. I'm Gerhard Steuben. And I'm Tyler Stanley. And we're here for episode two of our read-through and cliff notes through uh, Augustine's City of God, one of the most important books in all of world history. A fact that we forgot to mention in the last episode uh, that we learned from Jake Robbie, who was here last time, is that City of God is the longest sustained Greco-Roman work on a single subject. Yeah. And uh, if you've made it this far, congratulations. <laughs> it is very sustained. And it was the most read book of Augustine's in all of the Middle Ages. Yeah. More than Confessions. Well, let's get into it. Cool. So we're, uh, we're working through books three and four in this episode. So, uh, Gerhard, do you want to give us kind of a summary of book three? Sure. As I was reading books three and four for this podcast, again, I was just struck um, with how brilliant of a uh, rhetorician Augustine was, which makes sense since he was a professional rhetorician at a prestigious university. But he continues his argument in books three and four, building on what he said in books one and two. And he, again, if you have forgotten, the point of City of God is that Augustine is counteracting claims that Christianity is the reason that the Roman Empire was overthrown, specifically because people were saying that the pagan gods were angry with uh, New Rome and the fact that everyone was deserting all the pagan god altars and converting to Christianity. And so we're uh, essentially deserting Rome. And Augustine is writing this big, massive polemic against that idea and justifying Christian religion and saying, no, 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 you pagans uh, do not have true religion that gives true happiness. We Christians have true religion that gives true happiness. And your reasoning for the fall of Rome is not accurate. And he continues that argument in books three and four by taking taking aim at the true heart of the issue, which is pagan religion itself. He's no longer just sort of cutting out little bits of foundations around, like he sometimes did in book one and two. And now he's saying, what about your gods that you say could have protected Rome? Um, and he makes a few pointed arguments against them and says, one, your gods are ineffective. Even if they wanted to protect Rome, they couldn't have. And he cites examples that we'll talk about probably some of. He gives a lot of examples because he's building a strong, coherent argument. And so on the one hand, he says, your gods are ineffective. And on the other hand, he says, and your gods, maybe they're not just ineffective, maybe they're immoral. Uh, Maybe they don't care about justice. Why do you say that your gods sustain the empire because of, you know, your own justice when the civil wars showed that your gods don't care about morality. All your gods care about are winning. And so he takes that dual pronged attack and says the pagan gods like Zeus and Apollo, one, aren't just beings and therefore are no, not by net definition not gods. And two, even if they wanted to bestow benefits, they couldn't. And he takes this, he, he discusses a lot of the wars that uh, Rome has been through. Uh, he just kind of takes a trip down memory lane through Roman history. And it it feels tedious. He goes through event after event after event. And 
He spends a lot of time talking about wars, but he also brings in natural tragedies that happened, talking about the gods that couldn't have spared you from these natural tragedies that you're so afraid of. And it's interesting, he his underneath everything, he's always coming back to morality and how deprivation of justice and morality is the real concern that we should have. And his criticism of Rome is... You are so concerned with being defeated by other armies or being defeated by some natural disaster. And what you should really be concerned about is what happened long before you ever had been attacked by the Visigoths or any of these natural disasters happened is that you, your society is deeply immoral, which is exemplified by the gods that you worship, these who uh, Augustine believes are demons. This can all sound a little vague, a little ethereal, and all of you who are not first or fifth century pagans uh, might sound a hearty amen to something that just sounds kind of ethereal and, yeah, our gods better than their gods because their gods are kind of dumb. But to get this a little more concrete by pulling out one of Augustine's arguments that I think is pretty exemplary of the whole thing, he talks about this town called... Saguntum. This is book three, chapter 20. He says that during one of the civil wars, I think this is the war with Hannibal, um, second, yep, yeah, second Punic War, one of the, there was an, a really dangerous revolt, lots and lots of people dying, some, I think it was the one where some gladiators got together and rallied under a guy named Hannibal who basically tried to overthrow, um, Roman government and you know basically de- declare independence from Roman rule and all that. And Augustine says, okay, so we've got this civil war, which one shows that your gods do not actually make your realm peaceful and prosperous because both sides worshipped the same gods. Um, so first of all, who are they going to who are they going to side with? And second of all, um, what were they doing? In you said that if the rituals were rightly performed if all if good pagan religion was uh, kept up wholesomely then there wouldn't be wars and things like that but hey look at this civil war it's the worst war that rome's ever seen and it happened during the reign of the your gods when everything was fine uh so he says one that shows that your gods are kind of dumb but two the actions of this town named saguntum shows that your gods don't care about people living morally. And so Hannibal um, goes to this town and he, you know, wants them to abandon Rome. And he seizures Rome and the Saguntines um, refuse to break faith with Rome. They stay loyal to their lords. They remain good vassals of Rome. And so don't give in to this upstart Hannibal. And for that reason, Hannibal seizures the city and, you know, murders tons of people and does all these horrible things to Saguntum because they remained pious, moral people and kept their oaths, which if you're not an ancient person, you might think, what's the big deal? Break a promise. Breaking a promise was like one of the worst things you could do in the ancient world, especially if you swore by the gods. And so because of their piety and the morality, the Saguntines had this horrible, horrible thing happen to them. Hannibal destroys everything. And so Augustine asks, Oh, so your gods, the ones who you claim 
gave you all this power gave military victory to Hannibal, the Oath Breaker, and completely devastated Saguntum, the Oath Keepers. So either, one, your claim that uh, the gods are in control of military powers is untrue, or two, your gods don't care about keeping oaths, because if they did, they would reward keeping oaths. And so that leads um, to this, I think, really great thesis of book three. Are we to infer that keeping faith provokes the anger of the gods? Or is it that not only individuals, but entire communities can perish even when they enjoy the favors of the gods? Let our opponents make their choice. If the gods are enraged by the keeping of faith, let them seek the worship of perjurers. Whereas if men and communities can perish with frightful suffering, even when gods favor them, then their worship brings no fruit of temporal happiness. Therefore, those who ascribe their misfortunes to the discontinuance of sacrifice must forego their indignation. Moving on to another event in Roman history, still in book three, but chapter 24, he talks about more civil disorders in Rome, and he talks about the the Gracchi, the Gracchus family. And these were leaders of Rome, and they were actually, we might call them anachronistically social progressives. They did things like take land from the nobles who were who had way more land than they needed and redistribute it. They literally were redistributing wealth in their society, which for the you know lower class was great, but as you might expect, a lot of people didn't like that. So it started uh, you know lots of conflicts, lots of battling. In the end, the uh, elder Gracchus was murdered. And basically, Augustine says, look at the Gracchi family who are correcting injustice. He says, quote, The Gracchi wished to distribute to the people lands which the nobles wrongly possessed. But the eradication of a long-standing injustice was a hazard of the greatest peril. In fact, as it turns out, it was fraught with utter ruin. Think of all the deaths which followed the murder of the elder Gracchus and those which attended the assassination of his brother not long afterwards. So basically, even the people who are trying to do good for Rome, for the Roman people, they are brought to ruin for their good acts. And so the gods either are incapable or simply don't care. Or, as Augustine argues, they are demons and are leading the nation into moral decay. And so we might sit here and think, okay, Augustine, you say that uh, your gods are ineffective because bad things happen to you. That, that argument doesn't make much sense to me. Don't bad things happen to Christians? Um, does that mean the Christian God isn't real? Hold on, Augustine says. Uh, my argument is more complex than that. I think, uh, and he makes this argument in a interspersed through the books just so you don't lose sight of the argument he says no 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 i'm not talking about real theology i'm just talking about the inner workings of the logic of pagan theology us christians know that happiness in this life um, is not the result of money or power it's the result of living virtuously having a good conscience before god and then knowing that after death, we're going to be judged righteously and then be given heaven or resurrection or whatever Augustine thinks about the future. He thinks resurrection. 
our happiness does not consist in temporal goods, but in eternal goods. And he says, in fact, our God does send temporal evils against us in order to wean us away from reliance on temporal goods for our happiness. And so he says, we Christians have a coherent way to think about suffering. You pagans don't. And that's just interspersed through books three and four, just so you don't lose track of the fact that he's not saying the Christian God will make you more prosperous and healthy and wise and stuff. Yeah, sometimes it can feel like Augustine is just saying, no, you, and just (laughs) kind of turning it around and using arguments that could be levied against his own theology. But I think Gerhard's right that Augustine is more consistent than that. His argument is more complex and nuanced. With that, let's jump on to book four. In this book, Augustine, I feel like, delves deeper into the moral question about Roman prosperity. So he's been talking about all of the wars and calamities that Rome has been through and whether the gods caused or could cause prosperity in these individual events, um, saying that your gods are pretty inconsistent. But now he's asking about the nature of prosperity in the first place, about the conquest of Rome through the entire known world. Uh, You know, there's that phrase, the sun never sets on the Roman Empire. I mean, they had truly done something incredible in the expansion. But Augustine is asking kind of a blasphemous question. Should Rome be this big at all? Uh, Is it moral for Rome to have all of this territory in the way that they got the territory? Uh, And this gets into a little bit of something that we'll probably cover a lot more later on in City of God. Uh, He gets a little bit into just war theory, um, but not not very deep because I don't think he's ready to go that far. But we'll touch on it as much as he does. Along with the, like, what is justice, what is happiness... Um, and the analysis of Rome, um, he gives a definition of government, which will be pretty important to his thinking. He has this great uh, line. I just love it. My favorite line in the whole book. Um, Maybe my favorite line in all of Augustine. Uh, This is in book four, chapter four, if you're reading along at home. Remove justice and what are kingdoms but gangs of criminals on a large scale? What are criminal gangs but petty kingdoms? A gang is a group of men under the command of a leader bound by a compact of association in which the plunder is divided according to an agreed convention. If this villainy wins so many recruits from the ranks of the demoralized that it acquires territory, establishes a base, captures cities, and subdues peoples, then it openly arrogates to itself the title of kingdom, which is conferred on it in the eyes of the world, not by renouncing of aggression, but by the attainment of impunity. And what he's saying there is that Just because you can become big and powerful and have people recognize you as a nation does not make you morally a nation. Um, If you have justice in a society, however small, even if it's just two people living alone on an island, there you have a nation. But if you have injustice and caring about the the lusts in ancient terms, like just the desires, uh, unbridled passions of the leaders, and they don't care about the well-being of the people primarily, then you don't have a nation, you have a gang of criminals that has established itself. 
which goes back to book one or two, I forget which, where he talks about uh, Scipio's definition of a community as, um, uh, what is it, a place with justice. Um, And if you deprive it of justice, uh, you've... You, you don't have an unjust society. You have no society at all, no mm. community at all. And he has some problems with that definition, but it's still, he, he uses it for his benefit of his argument. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, he, um, in order to make this a more concrete uh, argument, an easier way to digest it is by saying, let's stop talking about communities at all. Let's just say there are two dudes, and one of them is massively rich, and he is successful, and he not he wants nothing but to continue to be successful and expand his his hordes of treasure, and he's you know he spends his life sweaty from running to gain his riches, and then you have another guy who is in the lower class. Uh, In fact, Augustine says, not lower, let's say he's in the middle class. And he's content. He has enough to put food on the plates of his family. He's got a roof over his head. Not rich, but he's fine. He's got what he needs. Which one of those people would you rather be? And Augustine says, listen, readers, you're not idiots. Of course you would want to be the second guy. The one who is content with a little bit. And so Augustine says, what's the difference between this analogy that I've given you and what Rome is doing now? Rome is the largest empire that has ever been in existence, the richest in existence, the most powerful, got the hugest army. So why are they continuing to expand, conquering their neighbors? And so Augustine is really challenging the idea of the Pax Romana, of the the peace of Rome um, and the idea that Rome has established any sort of peace in the first place. In fact, back in book three, he has this excellent quote that I think is worth reading. Um, He says that during the, the supposed age of peace, he says, peace and war had a competition in cruelty and peace won the prize. For the men whom war cut down were bearing arms. Peace slaughtered the defenseless. The law of war was that the smitten should have the chance of smiting in return. The aim of peace was to make sure not that the survivor should live, but that he should be killed without the chance of offering resistance. So this is Roman foreign policy. You conquer your neighbors and you destroy them so utterly that there's not a chance that they could rebel against you. This goes back to the morality of the gods and the morality of the Romans in general, why are you conquering your neighbors? It's not because they put up a fight and you're defending yourself and through unfortunate circumstance happen to annex their territory, which Augustine thinks is fine under the right conditions. He's, he has a well-thought-out idea of just wars, but he's saying Rome has not done that. Rome is essentially a band of pirates, just a large group of of thugs and so if rome is just a band of pirates which he tells this great story um, which is in there about alexander the great talking to a pirate and alexander says what is your idea in infesting the sea 
And the pirate answered with uninhibited insolence, the same as yours in infesting the earth. But because I do it with a tiny craft, I'm called a pirate. Because you have a mighty navy, you're called an emperor. And so by blurring the lines between government and banditry, uh, by blurring the lines between different types of power and dividing them not by political or terms based on like perception, Augustine divides them based on justice. By dividing them based on justice, he then is able to sit back and think, okay, only an immoral person would help Rome establish this kind of immoral dominance over the world, right? Well, what if it wasn't an immoral person? What if it was an immoral being, like an immoral god? If the gods, as you pagans say, made Rome into this super great power, then what you're saying is the gods themselves are immoral, because to promote immorality is itself immorality. And so this leads him back to his attack on the Roman gods. Um, and after this attack, which I think we've already pretty well explained by now, he goes into talking about the gods' effectiveness again, and he goes on this what seems like a tangent, but actually is pretty important to the argument, discussion about whether there's one there's only one pagan god worshipped under a bunch of different names, whether Zeus is the father of gods, or is all the gods, or how do you relate the theology of the poets versus the theology of the philosophers, and uh, this is all coming back to saying your god is immoral and ineffective. Just a minor correction, Gerhard's been saying Zeus it, you would be reading in Augustine Jupiter, which is not much of a correction because they're the same person, yeah. same god. Uh, in Greece, he's called Zeus. In Rome, in the Latin world, he's called Jupiter. And fun fact, uh, there's a theory that the name Jupiter just comes from the phrase Zeus pater, which would be Zeus father. And so if you say that, Fast, Zeus Pater, Zeus Pater, Jupiter, Jupiter. That makes sense, right? That's how words work. Yeah. So I just didn't want you to get confused if you hear Gerhard saying Zeus. It's the same god as Jupiter if you've been reading along. Augustine has been using the Latin name for him. Oh, also tell him the other thing about the derivation of Zeus. That's cool. Oh, yeah. Zeus is possibly from the word Deus, which just means God in Latin and uh, Greek would be very similarly phrased so yeah because it's theos if you do a d like d and a th it's pretty similar in like where your tongue is on your teeth and all that so theos theos theus different regions have different accents and so eventually these all blend together and kind of branch out into different ways of saying it so it's possible that zeus pater is just god father so and zeus is the father of the gods so which if you think about it um so this ties back into augustine's argument yeah we did that for a reason this was all planned <laughs> uh augustine changes from talking about the god of the the plays um the god like the zeus who turns into a dove and hurts people um he that's one way to put it <laughs> bad hurts people uh he moves away from that because even a lot of educated Romans said, that's all stupid. Uh, that's 
that's the fantasy of the poets. This is not like actual divinity. And they were actually pretty offended sometimes. Um, the philosophers were. And so the philosophers said, no, no, no. Some of them, at least, um, said, no, not only do the gods not do that kind of immoral stuff, there's not more than one god. Uh, there's just Zeus or Jupiter. Jupiter is the one god who is the soul of the world. Zeus lives in the world, animates the world, controls the world, and is what we might call the abiding spirit in all things. And if you think about that etymological uh, derivation we just mentioned, that makes sense, right? Because Zeus is just the word God. Jupiter is just like a bastardization of the word God. And so they were actually just, some of these philosophers were monotheists and were saying God is in control of everything. Um, and Augustine says, okay, okay, I'll take that argument too. There's one God who's in control of everything. Uh, and then he picks apart that idea and shows how it itself doesn't work. Yeah, so this idea of this one monotheistic god being the soul of the world or the what we might say all in all um he's critiquing the more of a pantheism like everything is god and so he um he critiques this idea of the philosophers by saying really whenever an insolent child gets slapped by his mom are you saying that that woman is slapping god or really, whenever one person worships, you know, this god, let's say, you know, this person worships Juno and this other person worships Apollo, what if these gods fight against each other? So are you saying that God is worshiping these other gods that are really just the one god and he's fighting himself? So he just says this is all illogical and stupid. Um, so he sets that aside pretty quickly and gets back into the polytheistic ideas. And he kind of takes it in a funny route and makes fun of the fact that the Greeks and Romans worshipped all of these different gods who had petty functions. <laughs> so, like, there's a god of the door, but then there's also the god of the hinge and of the doorknob and... So was the one God not enough to guard the door? And also, why do you have to have a God of the door? Uh, so which God are you calling on to help you during your time of war or crisis? Are you calling on the God of doorknobs? How is that God going to help you? So which God are you calling on? Looks like you're only going to be calling on Zeus since Zeus is the father of all of them. But then we run into the problem of the fact that Zeus is petty and immoral. One of the things that I like that he critiques about Jupiter, Zeus, whatever we want to call him, is uh, there's also a more um, abstract idea of the gods. So some of them say, like, Jupiter is the god of the ether. And then some of them say that Jupiter is the ether itself. And the ether is like the spiritual plane. I think it's above like it's an air that's above other airs, right? Yeah. We yeah. call it like the stratosphere, maybe? Yeah, maybe. But I think they would have, in their cosmology, it's like a spiritual realm. So, okay. um, you know, Mount Olympus, maybe? I don't know. But then Juno, his wife, is the air, which is right underneath the realm of Jupiter or the ether. So these two are, it's like a marriage. And 
Jupiter and Juno are the air and the ether having intercourse. And so it's, you know, supposed to be this beautiful picture of the cosmology and creation and all of that stuff. But then there's also a line from one of the poets that he quotes where Jupiter as the ether rains down showers of seed. Uh, the, the quote is the omnipotent father ether all supreme descends with fecund showers upon the lap of his glad consort. Then that's uh, from Virgil. Uh, well, the consort is the earth, which uh, may be called Tellus or Terra. Terra means earth which is either his mother or his daughter. And so Augustine makes fun of the fact of this disgusting show where Jupiter is essentially ejaculating on his daughter or mother or both. And Why not both? Yeah, and Augustine even says that this is pretty disgusting. Yeah, <laughs> it is really disgusting. Yeah. But, like, that's pretty normal for paganism. Uh, one Egyptian text has creation happening by one god ejaculating into his own mouth. Yeah. That's real. I remember hearing about that. Yep. I love how sarcastic Augustine gets with this story, because in uh, Book 4, Chapter 11, uh, he he's, brings back up this fecund showers and says... Uh, you know, so let them uh, make what claims they like in their scientific theories. And I think he's talking about like the philosophers who are trying to make all of this polytheism digestible and understandable and not ridiculous sounding. Let Jupiter be at one time the soul of this material universe who fills and moves the whole mass, constructed and composed out of four elements, or as many elements as they please. And then let him give up to his sister and his brothers their special parts of the whole. At another time, let him be the ether, so that he may, from above, embrace Juno, the air spread out below him. And then let him be the whole sky, air included, and fertilize with his fecund showers and seeds, the earth which is both his wife and his mother. Nothing disgusting in this, in the divine context. So, basically, he says, this is... I guess I, I was saying that it was his daughter and his mother, but it's his wife and his mother. Augustine is just pointing out the absurdity of all this. And he points out that you have all these gods of these little ind individual, you know, like doors and gates and grass and all this. But then you have those gods have individual parts that can get angry or happy with you. So you have the heavens or... Um, I guess that would be Jupiter's realm, but each star in the heavens is itself its own god, but also part of Jupiter. So all I can think of whenever I read this was that meme of exhibit, yo dog, I heard you like gods, so we put a god inside of your god so that you could worship all the gods. Because so... <laughs> you really don't want the god of the hinges to be mad at you. Like yes. if the god of the hinges is mad at you. But what if you make... <laughs> <laughs> what if you make the god of the bolt, the pin, the pin inside of the hinge, what oh. if that god is mad at you, but the hinge part itself oh. is happy with There's you? There's two hinge gods, because you have one side and then another side that are brought together by the god, and that's like the male god mm. in between his two female wife gods. Mm. Yeah. Like that, like that sounds absurd, and it is. It is absurd. I'm not, I'm not going to dissuade you from that. <laughs> but that is actually how people thought back in the day. Yeah. They 
actually did the like Augustine isn't making this up there actually was a god of the hinges and the threshold and the bar over the door and the lock and the key that goes in the lock mm-hmm. that's not so when he's mocking this he's mocking it to a very real audience and the reason that it sounds distant to us is because we have like 1500 years of being monotheists and that wasn't the case back then this was a real live argument and it actually is a coherent systematic thing and again just so you don't lose uh, track of Augustine's major rhetorical point. Uh, a bit earlier, we were talking about the gods are immoral, therefore untrustworthy, therefore not real gods. Here, he's talking about the gods are ineffective, therefore not trustworthy, not real gods. Um, in the sense that, like, if you need a god of the the hinge, you, we're not talking about gods here. We're not talking about anything that can actually help you secure Roman borders. And... Going back to whether we need to secure the Roman borders or whether we should expand the Roman borders comes back into his deeper question of, is this what will bring happiness or prosperity to you as an individual and Rome as an empire or whatever empire you may happen to inhabit? So he's getting to a deeper question of what should you be pursuing these gods are leading you to pursue something immoral in the first place and then they're not even not even helping you to accomplish those immoral goals these are all just humans fighting with each other but augustine being augustine this is all about sovereignty so gerhard you want to take the conclusion of book four uh, we've already extended our mini episode length that we were going for for these for these episodes. <laughs> so uh, basically, Augustine says, "Okay, we've dismantled your various ideas about the pagan gods. They're not trustworthy. They're not moral. They're not effective. Uh, the world is controlled, controlled directly, and controlled powerfully, and controlled absolutely by the one god." And the one God has plans, but, quote, he gives in accordance with the order of events in history, an order completely hidden from us, but perfectly known to God himself. So what he's saying there is that God, um, the true God, isn't conflicted within God's self, isn't arbitrary in the way God gives God's gifts. Temporal happiness is given by an unknowable plan of God, and that unknowable plan of God leads towards both gods maybe we could quote i think john piper's famous quote is pretty characteristic of augustine for god's glory and people's happiness and by happiness he means eternal happiness in god god's self uh, not in temporal prosperity so all of creation all of the universe and all of history is directed at god's glory and the real happiness of pious moral people and there's a a good quote to kind of expand on what Gerhard's getting into that I think will conclude with this. He's talking about that happiness, the true happiness for which we are on this earth. I think in Augustine's mind, this would be purpose. He says that that can only be enjoyed in its fullness and that life where no one is any longer a slave. The reason why God gives worldly dominions both to the good and the evil is this to prevent any of his worshipers 
who are still infants in respect of moral progress, from yearning for such gifts from him as if they were of any importance. So basically, to desire expansion, whether personal or imperial, is to miss out on what should be pursued in the first place. What we are to pursue as individuals and as a society is justice, which can only come from the author of justice, and that is God himself. And this source of justice, and the only society that can approach this justice is the city of God. And we as a human city are more or less close or far from that moral form. So this concludes part two of our read-through of Augustine's City of God. As always, if you would like to support our podcast, you can go to patristicapress.com and uh, check out the books that we ourselves have written and uh, other authors. We have some great books coming up for you in the upcoming months, so keep an eye on the website. Also check out our sister podcast, the Reformation podcast hosted by Jake and Jake Robbie and Gerhard Steuben. Uh, and they talk about Reformation stuff. Yeah, right now we're talking about Luther. Yeah, right now they just finished part one of their series on Martin Luther. Upcoming is the 95 Theses, which, if you want a free thing, will be available soon. I translated those from German and Latin into English, put it up online for free, just for you, just, just as a gift, because we're friends. Free content. Free content. All, all free. Until next time... Farewell, children of love and peace. May the Lord of glory and all grace be with your spirit. Amen.